Hey everybody, welcome back to the Bold Sidebar. This is your host Jeff Horn, talking all things New Jersey Supreme Court. Getting back in the rhythm after a, a summer where I got a little bit behind. The court kept cranking along, but I did not drop any shows in August because of a lot of things happening in life. Life takes over and I'm back in action here. This will be the second one we're dropping in September 2022. And again, just following closely in the news, the pending nominations of renomination of Rachel Wayner after and elevation of appellate division judge Douglas Fischelli. I believe I mispronounced the judge's name in the last show. I did my Google diligence previously and attempted to hear on YouTube or somewhere where the judge's name would be pronounced properly. I didn't find that. I took a guess. I got it wrong. I was speaking to Joe Fischetti, who's been on the show before and will be on again here in the next few weeks, who prepares a fantastic statistical summary of the Supreme Court term. And I'll just tease you with that. He's he's enhanced it. And really, it's I think it's a wealth of statistical information that you would get nowhere else but from Joe, who was a clerk for Chief Justice Ravner and an attorney at the Lowenstein firm, and now is in-house for the Valley Hospital System. So we look forward to speaking to Joe soon and breaking down numbers from the court. And today I have three state V cases, keeping with the theme of kind of breaking these things down and state V land versus everything else. I have the pleasure of talking to a lot of people, and I was speaking to a young police officer in the gym and talking about the case law and, and the ever-evolving state of police work. And he's a police officer for two or three years. So really coming in where technology is dominant and where police really have to square their corners and doing their work. He seemed totally enthusiastic about it, eager to learn. And he actually says, oh yeah, I keep up on the case law. So I was a bit taken aback and also thrilled to hear that a young, I'll say road police officer, wants to keep up on case law, doesn't want to be the champion of ticket writing, uh, wants to keep his community safe, do a good job, honor people's rights, and follow the case law. So for those that have perhaps a different view, uh, there's at least one young officer, and I think a lot of young officers have an evolved view of their job. And uh, I was delighted to have that interaction with him. And when I'm talking about the state B cases, I'm going to keep him in mind and, and look at this from hopefully his viewpoint of what's the right thing to do under some tough circumstances out in the world. So let's jump right into state V, Stephen Bookman. And we previewed this case a few months ago. It's a hot pursuit case. It's a warrant case. And I found it quite interesting. It's a unanimous decision from Judge Fuentes. The Amici include the ACLU and the ACDL. Really good work and interesting. The lawyer who handled the case for the defendant in the appellate division and in the Supreme Court comes by way of the public defender's office, but she is Jennifer Randolph and is referred to as designated counsel. So the way I understand designated counsel is a lawyer who is not an employee of the public defender's office, but who volunteers to jump into a case 
And that's what Ms. Randolph did here. She was with the Lowenstein firm at the time. I understand she's moved on to other uh, employment, but she argued the case successfully for Mr. Bookman. The irony for Mr. Bookman is he has nothing to do with the police work that was being performed by the New Jersey State Police detectives in Camden at 1 a.m. on this fateful night. Indeed, the state police had their eye on another person named Julian Bell for a string of robberies. They also had in their hand a warrant from the municipal court in Deptford for Mr. Bell's failure to appear to respond to a charge for driving on the on a suspended license. So they've got a warrant, as referred to in the opinion, an ATS warrant, automated traffic system warrant, versus a warrant issued by a judge. So we've had a long, long practice of permitting judicial authorities to issue warrants administratively for things like an offender's failure to appear in court to face charges. So there's a valid warrant. And on the night that Mr. Bell is pursued by the state police detectives, the warrant is about four months old. So here's what happens. The leader of the team that had their eye on Mr. Bell gets a tip that Bell is doing a hand-to-hand -hand drug deal in front of his home in Camden. Eight New Jersey State Police officers descend on the scene. Bell takes off. With him is Stephen Bookman, who takes off with him, and they run into a neighboring row house. They don't go into Bell's house. They go into the next door house. Police pursue, and at this point, we lose track of Mr. Bell in this story. I don't know what happened to him. I'm not saying we, the police lost him. I'm saying he is irrelevant for the moment as to the story. Mr. Bookman, who is not being pursued, he just doesn't know he's not being pursued, is found upstairs on the floor, prone on his face with his arms and legs spread out. An officer approaches him, starts to perform a frisk, ask him if he has any weapons on him. He says, yes, I have a knife in my pocket. The knife is recovered. The officer tosses it to the side. He continues an exterior frisk. He finds some bulge in one pocket. It's cigarettes, lighter, etc. Grabs those items, chucks those to the side. And then he says to the uh, to Mr. Bookman, uh, we're not detaining you. You should be free to go. At which point Mr. Bookman says something like, no, that's not true. I have a gun in my pocket. Officer retrieves the gun, hands it to one of his colleagues, is not that pleased that Bookman has mentioned this now after this has been going on for a, a moment. Bookman is charged with the weapon offense. Bookman also has some prior conviction that prohibits him from having a weapon, so he's charged on that violation as well. The attempt to suppress the gun at the trial court fails fails again in the appellate division, gets up to the Supreme Court. Policy, policy, policy. Let's talk about the policies here. As one of our favorite bold sidebar guests, Alex Shalom, reflected recently when we were talking, all of these cases emanate out of the police getting it right. In other words, a hunch, and they get the guy that committed the crime or that has the gun, etc. In this case, 
It's not even that. It's not even that the police were pursuing Bookman in any way. He's wrong place, wrong time. But the, the dueling policies are the requirement of the police, of law enforcement, I should say, more broadly, to serve and execute warrants. It is not the job of the police officer executing a warrant to assess the underlying crimes that give rise to the warrant, whether it's a traffic warrant or a warrant for a serious violent crime. That's not part of the discretion for the officer. The duty is to serve the warrant, to make the arrest, to return the offender to the proper location. That's the whole point of, of warrants. The defendant here wanted the court to adopt a per se rule that pursuit of one subject to an ATS warrant, essentially a municipal court traffic warrant, ought to be extremely narrow and limited only to entering the uh, defendant's home and nowhere else. The court declined to adopt a per se rule here, but rather suggests uh, a, a totality of the circumstances rule. So can law enforcement pursue someone subject to a warrant into a third party's home, into a third party's location? Well, the, the answer is, is not clear for all cases going forward, but must be analyzed under the totality of the circumstances. Here, the, the claim by the state and the police was this is a hot pursuit case. Supreme Court rejected that because of the, I'm going to use this term, this is not the term that's in the opinion, the, the misuse, I think the term in the opinion is the bootstrapping. The bootstrapping of a traffic warrant, a four-month-old traffic warrant, to grab a guy suspected of a bunch of robberies is going to take away any hint of exigent circumstances, i.e., if you're arresting someone on a traffic warrant, it's a traffic warrant. You're going to arrest them in their vehicle, outside, in their home, but there would be no reason to hotly pursue them as if there, there was some imminent reason to do so. And that's what the court really addressed here, that under the totality of the circumstances, the pursuit was unreasonable. First of all, again, the court is not that thrilled with the police using a traffic warrant to advance a different investigation. The time of day was deemed unreasonable, 1 a.m. The number of officers, eight New Jersey state police officers were deployed ostensibly to arrest someone on a warrant for failure to make it to a municipal court appearance. The entry into a third party's home is deemed here excessive, not per se, but here excessive and the pursuit of bookman who was not the subject of any warrant not the subject of any criminal activity as far as the facts had been developed that he should not could not have been uh, considered a suspect as part of the warrant so he has nothing to do with mr bell's warrant again he's at the wrong place at the wrong time you know, he's also a rather honest and polite fellow when posed with these circumstances where he seemingly is about to be released by the police and he volunteers that he has a gun in his pocket. I, I guess the policy for Mr. Bookman is the friends you keep. 
a word on hot pursuit. Uh, the court explored how other courts have addressed the issue of hot pursuit, and really there are essentially three grounds that will justify hot pursuit. One, the destruction of evidence. Two, the risk of imminent harm to others, and the threat to the police officer. Under those circumstances, hot pursuit may continue. Here, just to recap, although there was pursuit and there, there may have been something going on between Bell, Bookman, others, the reason that the police had any reason to pursue Bell was a traffic warrant out of Deptford Township. So on those grounds, there's almost never going to be a legitimate claim of hot pursuit such that the police can enter a third party's home. So it's an interesting case. It's certainly something that needs to be uh, taught to officers. This distinction may not be evident when the officers are sworn to enforce warrants and to arrest people subject to warrants and to take action in doing so. But here, the, the court helps to define and, and narrow the extent to which entry into a third party home would be permitted. Interesting case and useful lesson in what is and is not permitted under the hot pursuit exigent circumstances doctrine. Bottom line, Bookman's conviction is tossed based upon the suppression of the gun recovered in the third party's home. Let's move on to another topic that has been a hot topic for the past couple of years, the idea of compassionate release. So our law has been evolving on the subject of compassionate release for a number of years, including before COVID. You'll recall that the court released thousands of people convicted and others awaiting trial during COVID. And there was a variety of reasons to do so. Of course, compassionate release was a substantial part of that puzzle. Court did not want the prisons to become a petri dish for the rampant transmission of COVID-19. Tons of people were released. And this brings me to a unique analysis of the compassionate release law. It's state v. F.E.D. And I'll just make a note at the end of the opinion, and this is a unanimous opinion by Justice Patterson. Justice Patterson asks the legislature to clarify what the intention is regarding the confidentiality provision in the compassionate release law. The law says the matter should be considered confidential. However, the legislature also pushes these matters into the superior court and whereby all adult defenders are generally identified by name. Victims are notified and it's it's part of the public square when someone is accused of a crime, convicted of a crime, incarcerated and indeed released. Here, the Supreme Court honored the confidentiality provision by using initials, but clearly this is a policy set by the legislature that is in conflict with our general practice that when you're accused of a crime, when it's state V, it's a public matter. I believe that open courts and open court records are integral to our rule of law 
to the functioning of a free society. Perhaps the purpose of the legislature and all this confidential is so that all of the person's medical records are, are not on display for all the world to see. Right, we have a strong policy from HIPAA on down to keep confidential people's medical records. But certainly our free and open society means that if you're accused of a crime, everyone knows about it so that we don't suffer you know, Dostoevsky-like experiences with the criminal justice system where uh, you're sort of tried by an anonymous judge, you're an anonymous figure yourself, and the light of day never hits the, the process. Clearly, the court's concerned with treating these matters in the trial court as confidential. So here's the substance of the thing. FED, wherever he is, 73 years of age, convicted of three counts of first-degree murder, not eligible for parole until 2040. Two physicians, one the managing physician and then another physician, submitted a certificate in favor of compassionate release to the commissioner of the Department of Corrections. That triggers the offender's right to go to the trial court and ask for compassionate release. And in this case, the defendant was denied by the trial court, denied by the appellate division, and ultimately denied by the Supreme Court. The importance of this case is harmonizing a whole bunch of statutes that touch this compassionate release statute. So the debate deals with nomenclature surrounding the activities of daily living. So this statute says the basic activities of daily living. There are numerous other statutes that address activities of daily living. There's administrative codes and all of them have slightly different words in them. Here, the Supreme Court, Justice Patterson, applied language from, and this is going to be a mouthful, NJSA 30 colon 4-123.51 EL, requiring that an inmate demonstrate permanent physical incapacity and that he proves by clear and convincing evidence that he has a medical condition that did not exist at the time of sentencing. Two, that the medical condition renders him permanently unable to perform two or more activities of basic daily living. And three, as a result of the inmate's inability to perform those activities, he requires 24-hour care. So that's the standard. That's the court not writing the policy, but bringing together fragments from other statutes to standardize this. The appellate division, by way of example, in its review of the law, found that the inmate would have to demonstrate that he was not able to perform any of the activities of daily living. Justice Patterson, focusing in on the plural activities interprets the statute to mean that the defendant cannot perform two or more of the activities of daily living. And finally, there is a discussion regarding the likelihood of the defendant to reoffend and commit a crime, the same crime or crime similar 
to the crime for which he was convicted and incarcerated. And the Supreme Court directs the trial court to conduct an individualized assessment as to the likelihood of recidivism by a particular defendant. And finally, the other area where the Supreme Court differed with the appellate division, the appellate division looked at the preparation of the certificate by the Department of Corrections as an administrative function that should only be upset if it was arbitrary, unreasonable, or capricious. The Supreme Court said no, that the certificate produced by the Department of Corrections is just the ticket to entry into the trial court that would make this substantive decision on a clear and convincing evidence standard. So for Mr. FED, he had heart condition, he was elderly, he was in bad health, but he was able to function. He was able to perform all the basic activities of daily living, albeit slowly. His prognosis is bad, but as of this assessment, he did not qualify for compassionate release. Last one is a child abuse case. State v. ALA. ALA is the grandmother of four. This is a unanimous decision from Justice Pierre Louis and deals with affirmative defenses and corporal punishment. ALA, grandmother of four, from age 17 down to three, 17-year-old runs away, says she's being abused, eventually produces an audio recording of the three-year-old being beaten by the grandmother with a belt. The grandmother is interviewed by DCPP and admits she must have been having a really bad day, admits to beating the child with a belt. ALA is tried for the second degree offense of endangering and a lesser included disorderly person's offense of simple assault. At trial, the defendant gets an affirmative defense instruction on the endangering charge. That is that corporal punishment is not per se illegal or child abuse, that only excessive corporal punishment is subject to criminal liability. She gets that on the endangering. She does not get that charge on the simple assault, even though defense counsel suggested that under the charge, any spanking could be considered simple assault. The trial court declined to modify the charge. The defendant was convicted of simple assault, acquitted on endangering, and the case comes up for this interpretation. The corrective element or the policy element of this case is that when there's a child abuse case, the jury's being charged on simple assault, they must be given the instruction regarding corporal punishment that it is not automatically assault and that corporal punishment is permitted under the law. Excessive corporal punishment is not permitted under the law. The court remands the matter for further proceedings. All right, that's it for today. I'm going to keep busy here and get a couple more shows out to make up for my dearth of shows over the summer. The court will be heating up as it usually does in the fall and hopefully heating up in the next couple of months with the permanent ascension of Judge Fashali and Rachel Wainer after. Thanks, everyone.